So we are all incredibly honored and excited to welcome Maria Schneider to WPKN. Maria, I am so glad to hear your voice. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, I have to tell you, um, I have been doing nothing but listening to your CD since I got it. It is oh. so incredibly, it almost brings, and you know, I'm not a crier really, but it almost brings tears to my eyes. It's so beautiful. Oh, thank you. You're very welcome. I'm sure I'm not the only person who has said that to you. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. Years ago, I had a, a friend who lived across the street from me in New York, and when I would write music, a lot of times I'd ask her to come over and just take a listen. And if she cried, I always knew I was on the right path. <laughs> so let <laughs> I me. I'd love to make people cry. Well, you, you're doing a great job of it. And of course, our general manager, Steve DiCostanzo, almost fell over when you called. So there's that too, right? So you're, oh. you're just a celeb here. Um, and let me ask you what do you do with your five Grammys? Because you live in the city. Where do you put them? They're on, just a sec, I'm switching over to another phone. My All of a sudden, my, my battery's going light. Okay, hold on one sec. Okay, you hold on. Um, I'm back. Okay, can you hear me? I can, yeah. So sorry. Um, they are on a shelf. You know, I have a small apartment. I know you do, because everybody does. Yeah, it's a, it's a one-bedroom, and, you know, the living room is basically one corner I call my office, the other corner I call my dining room because it's a table, the other corner I call my music room because it's got my piano and you know, and then the other corner there's a couch and I say that's my living room. So they're some they're just behind they're on a skinny shelf that between two cabinets. It's not a very um, fancy uh, display, <laughs> I should say. You know, it's interesting because um, uh, Julie Andrews had an interview, and I thought this was so funny because she put one of her Oscars in her bathroom. Oh my goodness! And yeah, That's it was it, well a little bit of like I suppose like I don't want to show off. I think is where it might have come from a little bit. You know, she's kind of a humble person. But you know, I wonder once you get five of these things. I mean, they're not small, right? They're about like I have to they're, admit they're heavy. Yeah, they're heavy. I don't know, you know, if I would say that they're big, but they're they're heavy, but they're pretty. You know, they're very nice. I have them kind of scattered, and I have poetry books and stuff in and around them. So. There's a lovely picture on the Grammy uh, website where you're there and you're holding your two Grammys, and it just looks like, you know, a, a good day for you probably, yes? Yeah, that was a pretty happy day. That was, <laughs> that was, I think, the day I got, yeah, I won the Grammy for the Thompson Fields, but also for the work I did with David Bowie, and that was really um, very wonderful. You know, I want to leave time to talk about Data Lord, so I don't want to go too far down this road. It's a tertiary thing, but... You know, I was watching TV um, about three or four months ago, and this David Bowie documentary came on, right? And I'm watching it, and the last person, honestly, on earth that I expected to see was you. <laughs> I must be the only person on earth that didn't know that you worked with David Bowie. I just never associated. But then I remembered uh, Donnie McCathlin, right? And there must be some connection, I imagine, there, right? Yeah, so David was a real fan of the band. Years ago, he came to hear the band. I didn't meet him, but everybody said, oh, my God, David Bowie was in the audience, but he quick left right before you ended. And, and then I got a, an email from his um, assistant, and she said, for Christmas, I want to give him all your CDs with your signature to him. Oh, my and God. And I'll tell you what, <laughs> signing CDs to David Bowie, it's really hard. One of them I signed, I can't believe I'm signing this CD to you. <laughs> you know? I get it and, totally, yeah. It was so funny, but then um, uh, a few years later, I heard from him that uh, he contacted me that he wanted to try to collaborate on something, 
And um, and then after we were working, he wanted to do more stuff. But I was just I scheduled my whole uh, winter morning walks. Or no, 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 my Thompson Fields recording. I just I, it's, it's it's terrible to say I didn't have time, but I literally didn't. Every day was scheduled. And I started talking to him about Donnie, and I said, you know, honestly, I have to tell you, I think you and Donnie McCaslin with his group would do something fabulous together because they were both into similar things. They were both really into drum and bass music. Um, I just, I knew he loved Donnie's playing in my band, and I just had a feeling. And so, and he, he was so humble. He said, do you think they'd want to? And I said, <laughs> of course they would want to. And I said, the right. beauty is, I said, I know these musicians. This won't be some very awkward child of jazz and, and rock or whatever. It's going to be a marriage. They're going to be very sensitive to not make it, you know, to, you know, some, you know, sometimes jazz, when it, it collaborates with other genres, sometimes it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, blend, you know? It, it feels like two two puzzle pieces that don't quite fit together. And you know they don't quite fit together, but you just try to jam them in there because you want to get done. Yeah. It's, it's a little like that. But w- with Dale or um, uh, Black Star, they, uh, to me, they made just an exquisite work. I, I, I think David was very proud of that record. Unbelievable. Actually, what I say disparagingly is it sounds like jazz fusion when it doesn't go together well, right? I mean, that's what yeah, we're saying, right? Yeah, but, yeah. you know, it's funny because you said the same thing on the documentary that you just said now about, you know, I didn't have time for David Bowie in effect, and my partner was sitting next to me, and she goes... Oh, come on. And I'm like, no, she's really famous, too. I mean, like, in the jazz world, she's David Bowie. I mean, what are you talking about, right? But, and in effect, you are, right? I mean, I know you yeah. won't, you're, you're yeah. really not going to, I realize that would be too too much for you to say, but, you know, from my perspective, that's true. Well, it, it was more like, you know, I think that what um, people probably don't would never understand unless they went through it is what it takes, like, for instance, when I record my band, there are so many people involved that I have to schedule it a year in advance. And I schedule the studio a year in advance. And so if I break away from those dates, and, you know, you, you also I schedule, you know, weeks, months with an engineer. So you can't just drop these people who have not taken other work because of that, you know, and then, you know, put it off for another year or something. And so I literally, I just, I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't have a, a moment in my days. And it, yeah, it was really sad. So then after that, I cleared a whole bunch of time because we wanted to keep collaborating. And so I cleared, I didn't take work. I would just purposely said no to lots of things, but then he got sick. Yeah. So, um, yeah, too bad. But uh, you know what? I don't regret it at all because I think that the best thing musically came out of it. I don't think that um, if David and I had done a huge big project, it would have had what what Black Star had for David. So I, I feel very um, happy and good about, you know, somehow... I think that um, connectors in this world are very important people. I know that I have many people in my life that have just said, you know, you have to meet so-and-so. And And then you meet them, and it's like, oh, my God, what a, you know, and your whole life explodes with possibilities. And the fact that I could be a connector for David Bowie and Donnie McCaslin's group 
and those fabulous musicians, and Ben Monder is a guitarist who I, I said, you've got to use this guy, you know. And I just feel, um, you know, that that's very, very gratifying, I must say. No, I agree completely. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because this, you know, there's a lot of serendipity to, to radio, right? There really is. And so today I had Frank Kimbrough in, in my set. I had Ben Monder in my set, and I had Donnie, Mc, you know, Donnie McCaslin's in my set. And I'm like... Oh, wait a minute, Maria Schneider. Hmm. You know, and I, it, it made me reflect on how often, you know, the, the tremendous musicians that you have in your band, those people are the people that we play here at WPKN all the time. I mean, you have kind of your finger on the pulse of the jazz world, in my view. Well, yeah, I, 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 yeah. I mean, there's so many great musicians out there that I, I'm always hearing people that you know I've never worked with. I'm like, oh my God, where'd they come from? But you know, so there's a lot of incredible musicians out there. But I must say, you know, the musicians that I have the fortune to make music with are just some of the greatest I've ever known ever in the world. You know, <laughs> and and it's not an overstatement to say that. And I feel so lucky. I don't know how that happened. That me coming from where I come from without, you know, a, a natural kind of step into that world that somehow I found myself here. I don't know how that could have happened. <laughs> well, the rest of us do, by the way, uh, because you're very talented. But, you know, the thing that um, that I was thinking about is that your music is like words but music so much more than other composers. And I, I don't know if that makes sense to you, what I'm saying, but that is what I hear. I know what you're saying when you're, you're, you know, your compositions are clear to me, if you will, right? And I wonder, do you, and this may be too hard to answer, so you could just say you can't, but do you compose for the musicians that are in your group knowing that they might be able to do some of these amazing things that you come up with, or are they ideas that then your musicians take on, or is it kind of a combination of those two things? I, I definitely am thinking about the musicians. You know, there's just, it would be absolutely impossible um, almost, you know, these musicians, as you say, you play them on your station, so you know their sound. So when you get so close to musicians, you can't help but, when you write for them, hearing their voice. You know, just in the same way that, I, you know, I've said to people, it's sort of like when you talk to people, certain people you know really well, you talk in a different way. You know, you, you, you know them, and you know their reaction. You know their sense of humor. You know the limits of, of how you can push certain humor or sarcasm with certain people. You know their political whatever, so you know their touch spots, and you're careful or whatever. And, and you know, music is kind of the same way. You, you know these people, and you, so you come to them with, with different things. I, you know, I was just looking because I have to tell you, it's so funny you said that thing about words because today I read a really wonderful quote um, from uh, Dominic Argento, and now I don't know if I can find it, but basically um, he, it was something about saying that uh, he feels that music, uh, the best music is music that kind of... Uh, continues where words leave off, that they say the things that can't be mm-hmm. said in words. And I, I just, when you said that, I was quick looking for that quote because I wanted to read it to you, but now I can't find it. So. Well, we'll have to get together again, and you can read it to me then. But listen, yeah. I know we want to talk about data lords. So, you know, before I jump into this, you know, this is something where as you get older, you, you, you can be forgetful. I remember 
being at the Jazz Standard last year. Imagine us all there at the Jazz Standard, first of all. Like, let's just take a pause for that, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're, we're like, you know, shoulder to shoulder at the Jazz Standard. And I remember looking down, and I thought, this was like last November, if you can remember, I thought you played something from Data Lords that night. Oh yes. Okay, Last great. Last year, yes. Oh, a lot of things. I mean, some that music I wrote over quite a few years now. And we've been working it in, and then in the last year, in 2019, I really accelerated it. Now, was it? You said it was last year. You were the, that you were there. I was there. I remember last November. Yes, and last I, November. Yeah. So we see we had just recorded the album, so we were playing everything there. The album wasn't out yet. I was in the process of, you know, in the many months of mixing and everything, and. But, but um, yeah, we would have been playing that music, yeah. So what is it now? I mean, how do you feel about not being able to perform live, or have you figured out a way to perform live? Uh, no, it's so weird. Um, the only gig I've done is I just got back from the University of Miami a couple of weeks ago where I taught, and they did, the students did a concert, and you know, each musician was six feet apart, and in a huge hall, they had 35 people, you know. <laughs> it was very odd, but they did show it online, and, and they played two pieces from, they played Sputnik and Bluebird from Data Lords, um, and then they did some of their own uh, pieces. It was a real short concert, because then they have to, you know, clean the air. Um, but that's the only music I've made. I have to say... Starting this week, I started to feel like I was for the first. I'm I'm not a depressive person, but I started feeling like I was getting depressed, and I was like, okay, maybe I'm not exercising enough, and you know. So I, I went on this brisk walk, and I just started to cry. It was like a heaving <laughs> crying, you know. And I just think yeah. I'm so sad not to be doing the jazz standard this year. I can't tell you, we have done that. I don't know how many years. Twelve years, thirteen years. I'm not sure what it is. Um, they were going to look into it for me and figure that out. But, you know, every year those people coming and families coming, it's like this kind of pilgrimage for a lot of people every year, you know, that they come to the standard and we all celebrate the holiday together. And and it's, I just, I feel so sad about it. But, you know, what can you do? It's just... Um, that's how it is. Yeah, I mean, I, it's hard to imagine not going there in November and seeing you, you know, and I have to say that I thought maybe that the Jazz Standard might have a, a live stream and have you do it like that. Is there any possibility that that might happen? No. Oh. I talked about it with mm. um, some musicians about, like, okay, could we find a hall or something? Because, you know, the Jazz Standard's down in a basement. I don't know what their air situation is like. <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, for musicians blowing out through their horns, you know, you'd have to have a really huge space. Then you'd have to record it, you know. And when I recorded my band for the album, that was like months of work and $250,000, you know. Oh, my so God. Wow. It's like, you know, I, I, one of the musicians mentioned, like, should we do that? And then I just thought, I don't know if I want to put be the person putting people at risk, too, in terms of their health, you know. Not all of us are the, are the youngest, uh, what do you call it, you know, um, people in the world. <laughs> you know, Amen, sister, yes. You know, we're getting up there a little. So, you know, it's kind of, um, so, you know, well, absence makes the heart grow fonder. You know, next year it'll be, it'll be a, 
it'll be a crowded room. Hopefully next year it will happen. I think there's no, there's no doubt about that. But I think you're right. You know, the jazz standards in a basement, it probably has about the same air quality as we have at the station right now, you know, because we're in like a, I'm in a soundproof booth at the mm-hmm. station and all of us kind of like debate about whether it's safe to come up here or not but then it's like you know if I'm going to do an interview like this I have to be live right so I will come up and do something like that but um so tell me um a little bit about your thinking about data lords I kind of have a sense of it but you know I think for our listeners let's hear what your you know this is their only chance to hear it from your mouth what were you thinking when you put this this cd together well, first of all, when I write music, I just sit down and write, you know? I, I, I sit down, I just start playing, so, you know, um, Data Lords, you know, I, I'm, I can't even remember what key, but, you know, I, maybe I came up with this, and, I'm, and I just started playing that, and before I knew it, I was like, oh my God, this is dark, it's, but it's beautiful dark, but it's, and then I started thinking about this sort of sinister, the data lords, you know, they're all taking our data. It's constant surveillance. It's making us addicted to everything so that they can grab and know everything about us and make us buy things and make us think things and make us do things, you know, and I've been quite an, I, I, outspoken about this stuff. And so it started permeating my music. And, um, and then, of course, David, when I worked with uh, Bowie, you know, he was so, he, I'm sitting right here that we worked in my living room, you know, and, and he would just so delight when I would come up. He wanted it really dark, you know. So when I was writing darker and darker things, you know, he'd get this grin on his face like, yeah, go, go further, you know. So he brought out that dark thing in my music, and that dark thing in my music brought out the dark thoughts I have about the surveillance economy, about what it's doing to our young people, what it's doing to our political world, you know. It's like... You know, it's like forgetting whether you're left or right. I don't think we want Google in our as part of our democratic process. I know I don't. You know, and so it, so all these things were coming out in the music. But then at the same time, after I would write a piece like that, I'd feel like, oh, I need to write something beautiful. You know, and so I wrote Stone Song about this little piece of pottery with a stone in that jiggles and imagining, you know, all the little stones in the world that just sit there forever waiting to be bumped, you know, so I wrote this very sweet thing, and then the next dark piece would come, you know, and it would be like a piece called Don't Be Evil that was, you know, just lambasting Google, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, braided together, you know, or, or something about a Japanese garden, and, and at the, you know, as I was writing this music, one of, somebody in the audience said to me, you know, man, you really got to record this stuff, and I said, well, it's so disparate, I don't really know how. And, and, and he said, well, you do a double album, because I said, it's too much music, you know. And, and then I came home and I thought, wait a minute. Once again, my music is telling me about my life, because, you know, it's writing the music and then discovering what is it saying. And what it was saying about my life is I feel inundated by the computer, its demands, the amount of information, the demand of email, of text, of all that stuff, and what it's doing to my brain and what it's, what it's taking away from my relationships, from my relationship with nature, with myself. And so I realized there was this dichotomy, and I said, I'm going to make a double album. The first side's going to be about the inundation of data, 
And the second side is a call to remember what it, to turn that off and to reconnect with life, art, music, um, you know, pottery, whatever it is, poetry, nature, each other. There's a piece called Look Up, just meaning, yeah, look up at the sky or look up at each other. So that's that's what it is. You know, you have such a gift to be able to raise awareness about these things through music. And I want to ask you, you know, there's a way to ask you this question, because I know this issue of Spinatron and digital music is an issue for you. But I want to just give it a different spin to get you to answer a little differently. Um, You know, do you think that if somebody listened to your CD and it wasn't in order, in other words, there's two CDs and they just pulled it up on Spinatron and mixed it up, that they, they might lose something of what you were trying to say? I'm not sure. Um, I think, I do think that with this album, the liner notes are really, really crucial. I mean, the package we made is really, really beautiful, and I wrote a lot of, you know, liner notes to go, and I think it really expands the music. So I think people might enjoy the music, but they might be a little mystified by something, but when they know what it's saying, I think it's so much more meaningful. I know my mastering engineer, um, Gene Paul, he's Les Paul's son. Um, oh, wow. And, yeah, and he, and he, oh, he did everybody. Roberta Flack, he recorded Aretha Franklin, you know, the old days at Atlantic. He's not a spring chicken either, but he's, he's great. And, you know, when I re- started reading him the liner notes and telling him what the stuff was about, he's like, oh, my God. He said, you should put this on the album yourself, saying it between the tracks. It's so essential to the music. The music means so much more to me now, you know. And I said, well, I'm trying to make a really beautiful package that makes people want to read it like we used to read liner notes. You remember the old days, right? I do. And, you know, what we do here at the station is, um, you know, when we take our LPs out, we kiss them, right? Because oh. because we love our LPs, yes. And we, yeah. lo- we love that deep sound that you get out of that. We love the, you know, the liner notes and being, and, you know, frankly, as a radio person, it sometimes is incredibly difficult to figure out the personnel on an album now because to find it on the Internet sometimes can be really difficult. It's amazing yeah. to me. You know, like, wait, these musicians are the reason this music exists. Don't you think you might want to mention who the drummer is i mean i would like to know you know yeah <laughs> not well, the only it, one it, right? you wouldn't even believe you in these schools you know i have friends that teach at juilliard and they're like kids they hear this music and then you ask them do you know who's playing on that album you know who's the drummer did you know it was philly joe i uh, know you know <laughs> they, have, they have no idea who's playing the music and it's you know it's this this album, I would say, I think this album requires deep listening. This is not an album that you put on while you're having a dinner party or, you know, uh, and even if you drive, you might get arrested because you might speed up accidentally or something. You know, it's like, it's like I wouldn't recommend it for driving. I think it's, it's music to listen to in the way we used to listen to music. And, um, and it's funny you mentioned LPs. A lot of students tell me that when they listen to an LP, they do just listen. But when they listen on Spotify or something, they're usually walking around doing something else. They don't just listen. And they said it's something about seeing the grooves, seeing the whole thing, and having it be this mechanical thing. But I, I think there's something in the sound. Mm-hmm. I. I, I wanted to do a double album of Data Lords, and I still may. 
I, I, I have to decide if financially if it's going to sink me or not, you know. No, I can hear that. But, you know, they're very popular. I have to tell you that, you know, there's a bunch like Newville Records is out now. And mm-hmm. they have a subscription series where you can, like, I think for $250, they send you, uh, you can only get it on LP. And my understanding from them is they're doing pretty well. So, you know, wow. so I encourage you, although I don't know what the financial implications are. I don't want to lead you down a path. But um, Well, it would be fun and it would be interesting to do. They, I'm, I'm, I'd have to t- take off one song and I don't know what it is because mm. I've figured out the timings. You know, you can't put that much music on one side. Otherwise, you lose quality. Well, don't let it be the sun waited for me, please. No, it wouldn't be anything from the second the second CD. It would be something on the big data side. So I'd have to. That's a tough decision, though. Maria, yeah. you have been so generous with your time. We're talking to Maria Schneider. She is a composer, an American composer, and also a five-time Grammy winner and a band leader. And we are so thankful for your time. And, oh, thank you. And I want to invite you back again. And so hopefully next November, let's do this again. Oh yeah. Is it a date? You, I have a date. And, and, and say hello and yeah, I hope to see you a year from now. We'll do. So I want you before I let you go, would you mind setting up what you were thinking about when you did The Sun Waited for Me? Well, okay, so this song originally was recorded on an album called uh Winter Morning Walks and it was from a song cycle and it had a different title. It was How Important It Must Be and it was written to the poetry of my favorite poet, Ted Couser. And um, the poem is, um, uh, let's see, how important it must be to someone that I am alive. And wait, let me set this up for one second. He, I have to tell you, he wrote this book of poetry when he was recovering from cancer. And he ended up, he was very depressed and wasn't writing. And finally one day he went for a walk at the beginning of winter. And he decided to write a poem on a postcard and send it to his friend Jim Harrison, the novelist. And then he did it for 100 days. And they all, so it's called Winter Morning Walks, 100 Postcards to Jim Harrison. And they are very life-affirming poems. And the very last one he wrote on the, ver- on the vernal equinox, so the first day of spring, and it's how important it must be to someone that I am alive and walking and that I have written these poems. This morning the sun stood right at the end of the road and waited for me. And so I decided to make this instrumental version of this poem, of this song, I call it a poem, a song, and put it at the end of the album to remind us that, you know, there's a world there waiting for us. It's if we come to it, you know, it's like the big data world, that's coming to us and it's demanding our attention. But the natural world is just there waiting for us if we give it our attention. And so it's that reminder to just to walk, to be open, and that the sun is at the end of the, the road waiting, waiting for you. So that's the intro. Maria Schneider, thank you so much for your time. I will see you again next December. Wonderful. Thank you. We are listener-supported radio, WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut. We can do interviews like that for one reason, and that one reason is you. Thank you so much for your support.